Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Daniel Keevan with me, who's VP of Finance at Paddle. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Kevin. Lovely to be here today. We've been running a series lately on routes to get to that CFO top of finance role, which is called all sorts of things. And VP of Finance is, in many organizations, the equivalent of that post. You've had quite a journey, quite a lot of international experience and quite a lot of moving around. Danielle, where did all of that start? Well, yes, you are quite right. I'm born in the Netherlands. I went on vacation when I was five to Aruba and never came back. So that's kind of where I grew up and uh, on the beach in the hospitality industry for sure. And later on, I moved to the US, which is also where I got this accent from. <laughs> and I lived there, the university there. And ever since then, I've been working for US companies based mainly in the Caribbean and really sent out to troubleshoot their properties for about, I think, 10 years I spent in the hospitality industry before switching over to the tech world and um, the SaaS space. So troubleshoot properties, but you're a, a finance person. So did, yes. did that start as being finance? I did start into finance, which is super interesting because my grandfather is a CPA, but nobody followed in his footsteps. And so I was actually the only grandchild that accidentally landed into finance, I'm going to say. So, but it really grew on me. And I think I stepped in just as everything was getting way more innovative. Like companies started outsourcing and automating and machine learning. And I think the tech aspect of scalability really drew me in. And so for when I started working in the hotel industry, because of being in the Caribbean, you become quite scrappy in the sense of like, it's not as organized in the finance world as the Western world is typically. And you learn to get curveballs and look at how you can funnel them into compliance and make sure the controls are in the place. And as a result, whenever a property potentially didn't pass an audit or was in the middle of opening and things went were very challenging, or also, for example, um, a casino, which is a quite niche market in the accounting and finance and audit world. So these kind of unusual outliers, I would be sent out to kind of take a look and see how we can build the controls in place to make sure that we met compliance standards. Little did I know that that was the perfect breeding grounds to get me ready for tech companies and uh, scale up and startups for sure. Absolutely. uh, You've got some interesting names on your CV and we start off with Hyatt and then Marriott. Yes. And actually I started at Marriott. Then went to Hyatt and then went back to Marriott. So yes, I've definitely, um, I've been fortunate to work at really great companies um, under great leadership and with great teams as well. And it was very exciting. It was something I've always wanted to do. And I think at some point I decided, hey, I want to move over to Europe because I kind of like the, wanted to get the global experience. So I have the Americas, I have the Caribbean. So Europe was next on my list. So I definitely wanted to cross the ocean. And that's when I stepped over into the tech world about seven years ago and moved over to Europe. So tell me a little bit more about that move to Europe. Then. What, what happened? How did you do that? I was basically considering that the landscape would be different, the work environment would be different. Originally, I was planning to move with the hotel industry. Somewhere along the way, that didn't work out exactly as we had been planned, such as life. And then Booking.com came in the picture. So kind of a hybrid of the hospitality industry and the tech space. 
And that is kind of how I cross over. And I think I remember my first panic moment of switching over to having to account for a physical inventory to realize I had nothing physical that we were selling. And so that's kind of a realization for me that I really had to switch my, my perspective and look at what the tech space and how the finance in tech space, where the added value is and what we can accomplish in that space. Honestly, I think booking really got me super excited about scaling. When I joined, they had about a million hotel properties. And during the transition while I was there, they stepped into the BNB space. Right. That is way higher volume of transactions and way lower value per touch point. And being a part of really looking in a finance perspective, how to scale that has been a phenomenal experience for me. Okay. So what exactly was your role at Booking.com? I've had a few. I started out as the accounts receivable global manager, which is really specialized and focused on automating any cash that is incoming. I think most SaaS-based businesses really focus on um, PSP transactions because that's a little bit easier. So the Stripes, the PayPals, the WorldPays, and so on. When it came to booking, we had a lot more bank transactions, which are more challenging and less automated in the finance space. And so I think Booking.com had done a great job at building a team out that really focused on automation. At a time while I was there, they were at 96% automation, which is ridiculously high for the industry. And also enabled the team to scale. I think there were like 15 people that were processing all of the booking revenue that would come in through the banks, which is an amazing low number for the size of organization that they are. But in, in terms of organization, booking.com is there are lots of online businesses out there, but there are very few that nearly all of us have dealt with on a regular yes. basis. And most people have probably booked something through booking.com. Most people have bought something on Amazon. Most people have used a, used an Uber or an Airbnb. So it's, it's kind of that exclusive club of nearly everybody on the planet being a customer. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been a lot of fun uh, while I was there as well, dealing with that because everybody was like, oh, we know booking. We actually use booking. Yeah. So, so no, so that's where I started in receivables. And then I stepped over into setting up uh, the finance operations side for the BNBs that we were onboarding and fleshing that out completely before stepping into the regional role there as well. Right. So that took you into a, a regional role as part of Booking.com. Yes. But you then moved to MessageBird. Yes, that was a, a real fun move for me. I think at the time at Booking, my, I had a team of about 170, 170 people, more or less. So that was quite a different span of control and also how you manage and, and, and so on. And we were always pushing for innovation and scalability. And, and I think after like booking at the time had been there for 20 years, there's some inherent fundamentals that we are dealing with in the future and trying to sort out how these things flow together. Moving at booking has been exciting. And, but I got curious how much more I could do if I got into an organization earlier. And so that's kind of when messagebird.com came in the picture, which is also a very amazing, an impressive company to be sure. I think an amazing product. And it was an entirely different industry. I hadn't noticed that I had only been in the hotel industry. And I think booking also kind of does hotels and B&Bs. And I stepped in, stepping out of that completely into a CPAS space of communications as a service. 
it was quite an experience stretch for me as well to really understand how telecommunications worked, how the space was drastically different. So it was a lot of fun stepping into a smaller ship, so to speak, and seeing like, how can we get the right fundamentals in place so that we're building for today, but can scale for tomorrow. So that was really interesting move. Yeah. So what role did you take on in MessageBird? At MessageBird, I was the global head of finance operations. So basically, I remember when I stepped in, one of the questions was, what is finance operations? And so we got to define it, we got to flesh it out and build it out from scratch. So that was very exciting. And it's still running, obviously, to this day. So that that was really great. And really having to build out everything from how does the front of the house communicate in terms of data to the back of the house and how our finance processes fit on the rails and get these things out there. And also scaling a lot of the global market. I think it was right in a time when COVID hit as well. So how how were we going to scale the local entities that we needed? Where would we position local entities? And that's when employers of records came into place and fleshing that out and building that out has been a part of the experience there as well. Brilliant. So in MessageBird, we, who are you reporting into? The CFO as well. Into the CFO. So yeah. you're in the number two role to the CFO. Of this. Yes. Yeah. So MessageBird sounds very exciting. Sounds there's a lot going on, but you moved on again. Yes, that was not intentional. <laughs> I had no intention of leaving MessageBird. It was a brilliant team, brilliant product. And then indeed, Paddle.com knocked on my door. And I was, you know, talking to the recruiter because I typically try to respond to the recruiter messages and be like, well, thank you. I'm well placed, et cetera. But his response was so personal and nice that I got interested. And And the person was like, well, we're not looking to hire you now. We'd rather wait for the right person and it can take months. And I'm just like, well, okay, fine. I'll do the first conversation. And I think through the process, I genuinely was super impressed by the product. And by the people culture, which has been to this day is impressive to me. I think especially when companies this young um, or 10 years old really value people and focus on carrying the people along with their growth. That is a great sign for me as well to be like that kind of rings true to me. And along the way, I really fell in love with paddle.com. And that's how come I made the switch. So that's how I landed here. Also a different space, different product. What I also would really excite me about this as well is typically finance and accounting in companies have a dungeon role. So if we can keep you in a basement, we probably want to keep you there. And if we can put you back of the house, the further back, the better. And I was very curious what a tech company would look like in a finance role where finance is the product. And that has proven to be everything that I hoped it would be. I think it's been fantastic working this closely with the product and engineering team, like really working on the tax elements and making sure everything is 100% compliant and making sure the invoicing runs right. And so in in larger companies where finance is not your product, nobody cares about the little dots on the I's and crossing the T's. Like everybody's just like, ah, it's fine. We'll get to it later. We'll ship the product and finance will deal with it manually. Whereas here, finance is the product. So you have to get it right. So that's been super exciting. Well, the the product is finance and Paddle are using their own VP finance as part of the design team. I love that. 
Yeah, no, I, I, it's really been an honor. I have to give all the credit to the product and engineers, but I think it's just been brilliant to have that collaboration be so close to us. Yeah. So tell me more about what Paddle actually does. Well, Paddle.com does everything. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> so basically, we do everything that you need to sell your software. So if you have built a software, instead of hiring an entire finance team to do all of your processes, Paddle will do that for you. So basically, when we onboard a customer that has designed a software that wants to sell it, we enable them to sell to the world. We basically take over the entire payment process. So we'll make sure that the payments are accurate, that your acceptance rate is high. If a customer buying your product has a payment challenge, they'll reach out to us and we'll do the customer support instead of funneling that up to the the software seller. We also take care of the invoicing both to the customer as well as the person selling the software. In addition to that, we take over 100% of all of the tax liability, which is very, very rare. And I must admit, that's the one thing that kept me up the first couple of weeks that I joined. I was just like, wow, we're really responsible for all of the global tax. How do we do that? And now I have a greater comfort as I understand the business and the team is just phenomenal. In addition to that, we make sure that we're compliant. We make sure the compliance is in effect globally. We make sure to keep up with any payment legislation changes, and we manage all of the chargebacks. So I think basically it's a plug and play for you to get your software out to the world without having to think of where you have to open entities or hire people to run it or hire an accountant to do your taxes and so on. So we file on behalf of our software sellers and take the first. That, that's that tax side of things. That's something that really has caused a light bulb to go on in my mind right now, because I know from running online businesses, the rules are horrible. There's that wonderful thing called VATMOS if you're operating in Europe, if you're selling B2C. The rules all change if you're selling B2B. All sorts of complications when, say, you're a a company outside of Europe selling into Europe. I know rules are changing in certain parts around the United States around sales tax. Yes. So Um, I think, yeah, definitely. And and I think tax scanning horizon is something that is very critical to any business that has to file and do their own taxes. Yeah, because it's increasingly becoming, it's the importance isn't where you're sitting as the selling business. It's where your yes. customer's sitting as the buyer. So you're online. So straight away, you're selling into several hundred countries across the world. Yes. So then you're, you're subject to sales tax rules in whichever countries you're selling into. And how on earth do you keep up to date with that? Yeah. So it's, that's a fun part, Kevin. It's not in all countries because software itself has a whole different set of rules. So I I think that's been a part of that makes this so exciting and keeps us so engaged as well. We have our own team that literally scans the internet to make sure that we keep up to date with all the tax compliance. In addition to that, we also have global tooling in place from some of the big four to make sure that we're keeping up to date in addition to the own work that we're doing. And I think so far, it's been fantastic. We have not had any any issues to say, oh, wow, we have a massive breach to that extent or anything to that effect. So that I've been super thankful to be at Paddle and the way that we've insulated this risk and ensure compliance has been quite impressive to me. So, but yeah, no, I think, I think taxes is fantastic. The fun part for me is also that it's not finance and accounting. You tend to put them all together in one bucket, but it's such a different skill set. 
And I think working with our product engineering team as well, I, I always tell them, like, I know something is logical, but tax isn't logical. Like, it doesn't always follow common sense. You really need to lead, re- read the letter of the law and figure out how to implement it correctly. So I think that's been super interesting. I think one of the more fun landscapes is, for example, also the U.S., because you have 50 states and all of them have different legislation around your software taxes. So that's been, it's been um, fun to scale these markets and learning about taxes. I don't know if tax and fun usually go in the same line together, but for me, they have been. They're never normally things that I think of big <laughs> fun. And I just think of tax as plain hard work and far too much bureaucracy. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Danielle, you've got two VP finance in Paddle. Yes. What do you think's next? I am contemplating to step into a CFO role after this. I think that's the more predictable move. I do want to be the best CFO ever. So I've taken my time not to jump into that role overnight. I really want to make sure that I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. I think that would be a good next move. But the COO role also really appeals to me because I really do enjoy operations in finance the most, as well as automation and efficiency. So to be honest, I'm quite open to seeing what what will be next. Yeah, because you've got huge experience because of all of that troubleshooting work that you've done and so on of of being right in the middle of of the ops world and certainly talking to the design team in your present company. That's very much operationally focused as well. So yeah, I can see that you're in a, a brilliant position. So if you were going back and talking to the younger version of you that's, that's out in the Caribbean and just at the early part of that career, what's the great piece of advice that you would give to younger Danielle? There is this, I don't know, I'm going to go totally off script here, but there's this movie called Matilda. I don't know if you've seen it. She's like a little witch. And in this movie, at some point, there's this boy that challenges the norm and it has to eat this whole big piece of pie. Yeah. And the first time he sees the slice, he's completely overwhelmed. And then everybody's cheering him on. And in the end, he eats the entire pie. And I've always been of the mindset of do take on more than you can chew. Do put on more than you can play, you can handle. And then just take it one, one bite at a time. So often, I think even in my career growth, I've always tried to find a way to stretch myself and to take on more than I was assigned or to go further and to do more than I have on my plate and then to just keep growing. I think for me, that's been my intrinsic motivation as well. Like I remember my first job was an internal auditor for the casino. But before you knew it, I was doing hotel work. I was doing my own work. I was going to my boss, getting more things to do. So I think to the degree possible, take on more than you can and learn and grow with it. In complacency or, or being in a peaceful place where you're not growing is a very dangerous place to stay, especially when you're young and wanting to grow. I fully agree with that. And certainly it's one of the reasons that we exist as Grow CFO, because we, we want to see finance leaders growing, taking on more challenges, getting bigger and better roles. And there's a lot of people involved in, in our business that want to give a lifetime's worth of learning back to the next generation that are emerging coming through. So I think we're all coming from the same place. Danielle, thinking about SaaS business founders, you must have come across a, a lot of them now through what you've been doing. What sort of mistakes are you finding that they're making when they're scaling globally? I think a few of them come to mind. I think the biggest one that I've run across several in the tech industry 
both the companies where I've worked or not have worked is the data quality is challenging. Yep. I think initially out the gate, the founders can be so excited about the product that there's no afterthought about how are we going to track this and monitor this. And I'm sure that that's not the first thing that we should be thinking of if you're founding a company and starting, but you should keep it in mind that how am I building this product so that we can scale the data in the long term? Because I think not having the right quality of data has such a large impact on your organization as you begin to scale. You're typically not able to track what your customer pain points are, where your where your product potentially is falling short. You don't have metrics to show you where your market opportunities are to grow. And also, it might really impact the, the data quality that your finance um, team produces for you to accurately know what the compass is for the business. So I think I think out the gate, we could do a better job at just data management. Um, that's something that I've seen um, companies um, struggle with. And even not even just SaaS businesses, just in general. The other thing I've noticed is that sometimes we are so excited about an idea that we forget how we're going to turn it into cash. And I don't think cash or money should be the motivation. I think you should have an idea that fits a market need and has something that we're returning to people. But as a company, if you want to be viable and continue your business and continue to expand your software growth, you also need to think about how you're going to materialize selling it. What is the customer journey like? Where am I losing customers? Are they dropping off? Is the process too complex? Is it prepaid? Are we going to do postpaid? How are we going to maximize the customer experience? How am I going to maximize my acceptance rate? So I think all of these things are really critical to have your basic strong start and make sure that you're not losing either money or your customers in the process as you're growing. So those are like two of my first thoughts that come to mind. The personal one that I have is that I think, and there's a right time for this. I think, especially when you're starting out, you do need to determine when the right time is to get your highest ROI, but neglecting operations is will cost you in the end. And when I talk about operations, I'm talking about how will my organization support the customers? How will my sales team capture the sales? So we often don't think about how the processes will work, which results in very tedious processes, over hiring for things that could be more efficient, that will impact your bottom line as well as just your overall customer experience and your employee experience. So I think operations does need to have a place in how we built and how we scale in the SaaS industry. Very much so. Very much so. And certainly it's something that, that we're thinking about a lot in growing CFO at the moment where we're launching or will will have launched for several several weeks by the time this podcast goes out, our strategy program. And one of the things in there in the in the strategy software that we're providing along with that program, there's a there's a template to build a strategy around internationalization. And certainly I think those are all lessons that need to come into, into that strategy. Yeah. Once you go global, there are so many more factors to take account of, so many more markets. Now, it's not just one set of data. It's sets of data from individual countries, individual subsectors of users, and so on. So I think there are some really, really big challenges there. Yes, and massive opportunity as well. Indeed. So in terms of giving you that data, I guess Paddle has to be a product that can supply you with a lot of information besides handling the payments. Yes, we provide our 
software sellers with a dashboard of how they're doing. In addition to that, we've just acquired ProfitWell, um, who has an amazing engine additional to this and be able to expand the product, especially on the data and reporting side. So right now we're still kind of gearing up to bring it all together for our software sellers. But that is exactly why this was such a great strategic alliance with this company and where we are ramping up the most to be able to not only provide, hey, we're running your software payments and your tax compliance and everything, practically almost your full accounting for you. But now we can also give you all of your reporting that you have and above and beyond you ever could think of. So I think I think that's a great outlook that we have and the strategy that we've implemented as well and are building towards in the coming months. And that's non-financial reporting as well as financial? Yes. So it, it covers also performance, market performance, churn, uh, retention. It's a very wide span of reporting that we will be able to offer soon. Yeah. And certainly, certainly customer churn is one of those things that I think is absolutely vital in a SaaS or a membership business. And you're dealing probably mostly with software sales in Paddle and GrowCFO, the, the business model isn't that greatly different. We're, we're dealing with memberships into a training platform, but it's a similar sort of thing. When you put a lot of effort into a sale, how long are you going to retain that member for? Are you going to retain that member for three months, six months, 12 months, two years? And we're, we're still learning because we're only, as a business that's been collecting revenues, two years old. So we still don't know really what our proper return retention rates are. But you've got to know the lifetime value of a customer yes. in order to work out how much you can spend on acquiring that customer. Yes, most definitely. And I think that is definitely one of the greatest opportunities that we saw and also prompted this partnership and acquisition of ProfitWell. So there's a lot more to come on that. Mm, sounds very exciting. So if anybody's listening to this and thinking, oh, finance career, I want to get to CFO. What advice would you be giving to anybody looking to get to that CFO role? I know you haven't quite got there yourself, but you're very, very close. What would you say is the thing that's put you in the best position to move to that CFO role? I think I would say be unafraid to hire people who are better than you in the fields where they're at as well. And listen, listen to your team. Like, yeah, you need to have your own ideas and you need to listen to the market and you need to do your own investigation. But I found that often when there are massive challenges to solve or to go forward on, that the person closest to the problem typically has a solution or an approach to it that you hadn't thought of. And often I found as well, if you don't ask, it isn't always volunteered. So I think asking, knowing when to ask, how to ask the right questions, both to teams as well as to the business is a critical key to being a, a strong CFO, to understand what is happening and how we can strategically position ourselves better in a market and as well in, in just as a company and how we're operating. That is so true. And as I look across our own competency framework, we've identified 45 skills for a CFO. You can't possibly master all 45. And I think a lot of finance leaders start feeling a lack of confidence because they suddenly notice the ones perhaps they're weak at rather than the ones they're strong at. And place your own strengths. Hire people in that do the things that you're not good at or that you don't want to do. You don't have to do everything. I think that's, that's very, very true. 
Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I would echo that sentiment 100%. I think what I've also learned is you cannot do everything. And if you do have somebody doing a specific task or function um, within your scope that you actually don't understand, but they're doing it so well that you don't have to fully understand and get in the weeds, don't forget to also appreciate the person and their talents. Instead of saying like, oh, I don't understand what you're doing, therefore I cannot appreciate it. Make sure to appreciate the people who are doing that as well. And th- this is a bit of advice that I, I must admit personally, I've struggled to get my head around. And my dad was a, a chartered accountant as well. He was in public practice, was in a, a two-partner business doing company accounts, company audits, bookkeeping, payroll. And dad always had the attitude of never delegate to another member of staff something you couldn't do yourself. And that was probably fine in the world where there was no fintech. Yes, you had to pass your accountancy exams to get to know how to do everything. And it was very much you were doing a set of things by a particular procedure. The world has moved on so much that yes, you can't have that attitude anymore. Yes, I think it's now actually quite the opposite. <laughs> yes. You should be delegating everything you can to yes. someone else. Personally, I also see it as a development opportunity for the team member that can pick it up. If you already know how to do it and they do not, you can actually delegate to them and teach them how to do it. So I found it quite a a positive two-way street experience. I do delegate everything I possibly can, but I do make sure that I keep track of them. So maybe I set up a steerical committee that you can just kind of check in, even if it's 15 minutes a week and make sure the big pieces are moving forward. But I do find delegating the more challenging elements to be super rewarding. Because I think one of the challenges in the tech space as well is that as opposed to a big four, your career path is very, very much mapped out. In a tech space, it's very like chaotic. You don't know. Today you're, you know, yeah. you'd be doing anything tomorrow. There's an endless possibility, but it's not a clear step up or a straightforward climb as it would be like in a structured organization. And I think often we also wait to prepare people before they step into those roles. So I actually, if I cannot find constructive feedback to give to a person, then I'm going to evaluate and say, well, I'm not stretching them enough or where they're making a mistake or something that we can work on together. So let me already give them tasks ahead of where they are now. And then we can work together on sharpening their skill set, as well as getting that critical feedback to help them grow personally and professionally in their career. That is a fantastic approach. That's great in the position where you know what it is that's needed. You've done it yourself. You've delegated it. Great. You can push somebody and get them moving forward. But where you've recruited somebody in to do a job that you don't have the skills in and you're pushing them just that little bit further into into a space that they're just slightly outside your comfort zone. How do you control that, Danielle? Yes. So... For me, I think one of the biggest learnings I've had as well is in the fraud space. So typically in some organizations, fraud is kind of something that is a standalone uh, team. Here at Paddle, it is as well. We have a VP of fraud who is absolutely brilliant. Uh, But I've been in roles where it did roll up into finance, and this was not necessarily my expertise. So then I made sure that I hired somebody that was an expert in their field And I would just ask the questions to let them explain to me what they're doing, how they're approaching things. And also that's kind of, they actually taught me 
how to look at fraud. And then you say, well, how can you help somebody like that develop? Well, the opportunities to develop there is that instead of me, for example, presenting that person's work, I'm going to take them along to the executive committee and be like, you go ahead and have this opportunity. So then I can help that person develop their professional skills, presentation skills, and just their overall endurance as well. Because I do think those roles tend to have a lot of pressure on them as well, because obviously the compliance of the company does rest on their shoulders. And just building up that those character elements to set them up for success is still an area of development that you can add, even if you don't understand what their job fully 100% is. So that's how I approach it. And I tend to be very transparent as well. Like if I'm interviewing for a role that I'm not an expert in, I'm very transparent saying like, hey, you know, when you do come in, you will be the expert. You will be kind of taking me along because I'm, this is not necessarily my expertise, but you can count on my full support to give you whatever you need to get it done. And that's also how I approach it. Because often my question is, how can I help or what can I do to help you be successful? Be it a product and engineering resource, it being like scoping out um, some software or sitting in on software selection processes. Because while you have an expert in their field, that doesn't mean that being from a finance perspective, you don't ask completely different questions that may add additional or different value than an expert normally would because they're so in their element. So that's that's how I approach those kind of situations typically. It sounds like a fantastic approach. Danielle, we've covered a lot. We've taken you on a journey from a, a holiday as a five-year-old where you accidentally relocated. <laughs> Through a career in the hospitality industry, moving into a tech business in hospitality and booking, moving out of that into telecoms, moving from there into fintech, moving into a, a VP finance role, getting ready to step up to CFO, talking about all of those problems that you're seeing in SaaS companies that you're working with as clients and the challenges they have. Gosh, we've covered a lot. We certainly have. Thank you for being such a great guest on this week's Grow CFO Show. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure, Kevin.